on the windows was a bit uncomfortable for your back. If you keep looking at the mirror, you'll also bump into people. So, but other than that, it was pretty fun. Yeah, it was yeah. really fun. Yeah. You had to pretend to go on it, like pretend you're climbing and pretend you're falling, and you have to get in different positions so that it's, it's like you're climbing it. Yeah, it looks really real. It's really cool. Yeah. I reckon if you took a photo of it, it looked like you're actually hanging or yeah. like standing or mm. walking up the wall. Um, it's probably like the house I live in in Leeds. Yeah, it's very similar. Three storey, uh, stone, sandstone house, uh, bay windows at the top, and a big front door. You have to like act like you're on the building from the mirror and you have to get in a position where it doesn't look like you're floating but like you're dangling and holding something if you want it to look real. Hi, I'm Rory. Hi, I'm Ryan. Hi, I'm Olivia. You're, you're listening, listening to, to the Guardian Festival Podcast. Confusing. Welcome to Guardian Australia's Sydney Festival podcast. I'm Vicky Frost and what you heard being described there is Merchant Store. It's a big art installation down here at Darling Harbour where we're recording the podcast today. Uh, it's by Argentinian artist Leandro Ehrlich and it's been shown in London and Paris but this is its first outing in Australia. We'll be talking about these large installations just like the one I'm standing outside now that have popped up all over Sydney for the festival. We'll also be hearing from the Hilliard Ensemble and talking to Joel Mears, who's the editor of Time Out Sydney and has some thoughts for things you might like to do outside the festival. I'm joined by Andrew Frost. Nice to be here. Joel Mears. Hi, Vicky. And Van Baden. Hello. And in today's podcast, we're going to have a bit of a chat about visual art at Sydney Festival. And we're going to start with this piece that we're all having a look at now. Um, it's quite Well, we're sort of having a look at it. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, basically, it's the facade of a house, uh, sort of a very beautiful kind of old house, uh, but it's created on the floor, and then a mirror is angled at it so that you can effectively sort of climb up its facade. Uh, what's anyone thinking about it, Van? Oh, I think it's enormous fun. In fact, I had a go on this yesterday because it, it really plays to that childish sense of delight in a space that you have one expectation of but is playing in the opposite direction. And apparently this is this artist's whole thing, is he's trying to destabilise your relationship to your expectations of space and buildings. So it's quite extraordinary to see like little children playing all over like a building facade as if it's a piece of playground furniture. And that's what's so delightful about it is that it re-engages that sense of play with something that we have very sort of stead and ordinary expectations of. And what about you, Joel? So this is the first time you've seen this. Yes, absolutely. So it's like a, like, it's a lovely first impression. Yeah, I think it's really great. I also think it's a little strange that people are sort of laying down on this thing just to look at themselves in strange ways. It's kind of that carnival mirror phenomenon. Um, but I think it's a really smart sculpture, if we can call it that, in terms of social media, because you can see everyone on that... Uh, display has their phones out and are taking photos and are now hashtagging and Instagramming and Twittering. So the Sydney Festival, I'm sure, is, uh, is doing well out of that. I have seen more Instagrams of this artwork 
almost than anything else. Maybe I think. the duck. Ex- apart from maybe mm. the duck, exactly. So, um, Andrew, now you've been looking at visual art for us uh, for Godinos for, um, at the festival and a lovely set of videos that you can go and see on the website if you'd like to see Andrew Frost in the flesh. But for now, uh, give us your thoughts on this work. Well, I don't know how much more I can add to what uh, Van and, and, and Joel have said about it. I think they've pretty well summed it up. It is interesting, I think, for me that this piece exists almost more on social media than it does in the flesh. You know, it's perfectly situated as, a, as an artwork in a festival or a festival context or like this context here at Darling Harbour where people can come and interact with it and, and, and take photographs of it. But then, you know, when they go away from it, it evaporates. It's no longer here. It doesn't exist in any, in any sense apart from the memory of it and the photographs. And is that a problem? I mean, for sort of uh, for those who don't know Sydney, Darling Harbour is kind of it's kind of quite touristy, and there are attractions here, and you maybe come with your family and have a bit of lunch. It's more it's IMAX. more than quite touristy. It exists <laughs> it exists for tourists pretty much, and and the occasional you know visitor from interstate perhaps. <laughs> that's that's about it. And so does that matter? You know that it's so um, you know it, it it's gone from your memory so quickly. Well, I think it raises interesting questions about the longevity of an artwork and what, where its meaning lies and whether one can take that away from the experience and how long you hold it with you because, you know, other, other artworks and other contexts seem to have a little bit more traction on one's memory and one's emotional response to things. And so this work is, as, as my, my friends here have said, is a lot of fun, but I don't know what, what more it is beyond that. And so let's, I mean, there are other artworks perhaps, uh, other of the visual artworks in Sydney Festival that you could perhaps say the same thing about. I'm sort of thinking, certainly Rubber Duck at Parramatta. I know you have quite strong thoughts on that. And um, also perhaps even Sacrilege, um, which we've talked about before. Um, Well, I think when when you think about or consider these works in the context of the artist's other work, the intentions behind the piece become a little bit more obvious, a little bit more transparent. You, you, you tend to understand what they're doing. Jeremy Della's Sacrilege, which is a bouncy castle uh, experience on a full-scale replica of Stonehenge, sort of sits in, a, in his work. He works in an area which is quite interesting. He, he trades between uh, public memory of events and historical record of events. Uh, and so the Stonehenge work actually fits in quite nicely. Ehrlich's piece here at Darling Harbour fits in beautifully with the work that he's done where he investigates architecture and one's experience with architecture and isolates bits and pieces of it in different ways. Mirrors are something that recur throughout his work, video projections and and things like that. But all of them, uh, all of these outdoor works have this this kind of festival aura around them, if you like. They kind of got this fun, fun engagement, uh, which on one level infuriates me, but on another level I kind of think, yeah, okay. You'd have to be grumpy, wouldn't you? It's Sydney in the sunshine and everyone's enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, so let's just, you know, forget any critical response to it and just enjoy it, you know? Let's have an ice cream. Um, I think it's fantastic that these are publicly accessible works. And I think in terms of, you know, it's one thing for us as a group of critics to go, oh, where are we positioned in relation to this work? But in terms of a role of the Sydney Festival, I think it's really important that you're looking at bringing, bringing the art to the families and bringing the art to the tourists and bringing the art to the passers-by. Everybody who 
who I know who has children is fascinated with the idea of the big rubber Stonehenge and a way of bringing their children into contact with that kind of participatory experience. I think that's the real subject. Yeah, I don't think anyone's saying that's not good. I think, but it's about balance, I think. It's kind of, you know, I think you can have works that are hugely accessible and uh, are fun and great, but it's about sort of balancing that with worth as well, isn't it? Well, I just think that it is important if we're going to look at, you know, we've always had an issue in Australia about regenerating uh, generations of art consumers. Like, it seems every generation of, of young people who come through, we're re-educating them in, the art, in artistic appreciating, appreciation. There's another inquiry. How do we engage young people with theatre? How do we engage young people with visual art? How do we make our spaces more accessible? And this is a really good way of stocking children with positive experiences of public art that they can associate and acclimatise themselves to. Every kid who jumps on this building and or who plays Stonehenge or engages with the other works has a memory of art which is positive, which is associated with their childhood and associated with the unique and the adventurous. And I think that's definitely something that the festival is doing very well to encourage. Well, the question is, you know, it may be great for uh, audience development and audience engagement, but does that make a good art? I think that there's everything great about a big rubber Stonehenge outside of St Mary's Cathedral. Like in terms of the cultural juxtapositions going on there, I think that's a highly insightful and very funny like collection of, of objects to put into proximity. Kids bouncing up and down is one thing, but putting those two structures in really? proximity I think is hilarious. you think that's sophisticated? you think that's sophisticated? It seems like a really blunt statement to make. Yeah. It's not exactly what you call subtle. Well, I mean, blunt for professional critics, perhaps. No, blunt for anyone. I don't think it's rocket science. You know, druid, druidic, rem, uh, druidic ruins rendered as a, as a bouncy castle opposite a Catholic church. I mean, two plus two equals what? But also, I mean, there are other... There are, but what the work does is it also illuminates the other crazy juxtapositions that are going on in that space. That those of us who grew up in Sydney, people like me, accepted no, no, it unquestionably... It no, I think it does because I mean, I've, I, as a child, I never questioned the proximity of palm trees to Gothic architecture. I never thought about that. That was my built environment, and I lived in it. But to put like the palm trees and the bouncy castle and the church and the structures of government—that all occupies a very small geographical and cultural space that's trying to speak to all kinds of different political and religious beliefs simultaneously. See, see the, I, I guess this is where we differ because I don't read any meaning into that juxtaposition. It's just an accident. It's just the way it was. All of those things, true, the way you're interpreting it, I'd absolutely agree with what you're saying. But in terms of, you know, kids coming and jumping on a bouncy castle and walking away with happy memories of their childhood, you know, I don't really see that engaging with the work that much. So, uh, I got in Australia, obviously a place for lots of different voices, lots <laughs> of different opinions. You can find more of them on our festival live blog and all our coverage. Uh, head on over to theguardian.com for more of that. Uh, so we should talk a bit about some of the uh, art that's indoors as well as the stuff that's outdoors and everyone's taking uh, pictures of themselves outside. And uh, among those is uh, Christian Boltanski's work, Chance, which is at Carriage Works. It's, um, um, I really like it, I should say here. It's, it's sort of a massive sort of scaffolding installation um, and through which runs a loop of uh, pictures of um, babies from Polish newspapers, I think I'm right in saying. Um, and it makes them interesting. Um, there's also a big counter that counts down deaths and a big counter that counts up births. And it's making uh, some thoughts about life and death. And I think Andrew and Van have differing opinions on this uh, once more. Uh, Andrew, to you first, what did you make of it? 
Well, I think that what Boltanski's managed to achieve in the work is the sort of balance that pieces like Ehrlich's and, and Della's uh, strive for, which is a, a fairly accessible idea rendered in a fairly obvious way. The, the piece is a gigantic metaphor. It's not particularly subtle. It's not particularly subtle as an idea, but it does, Boltansky's piece does have a level of ambiguity, and that's what I liked about it, because although he himself, when I interviewed him for The Guardian, had to say, you know, he, he said that it was an optimistic piece, that it was about a celebration of life, it did also have, I think, a much darker side to it, a, a much more pessimistic view of humanity as a kind of the output of a giant machine that never ends. And, and I couldn't quite reconcile those two readings of the work. I didn't entirely understand what he meant. And I liked that. I didn't, it left me with a space to think about the work when I walked away. Uh, Van, thoughts on that? Really didn't do it for me. I've just, I've just seen so much like it. Like it's, it's sort of, you know, corner of Mona kind of stuff. Oh look, it's a consideration I of life and death. I don't think that's true. Corner of I Mona really kind of stuff. I really don't think it's corner Here are some pictures that's of babies so and oh my god, there's a death toll at the end. Nobody saw that coming. Wow, we made it. And the piece is called <laughs> Chance. But you can't say that, you can't have problems with that subtlety, but then say the Stonehenge is, is, is you know, is I've seen subtle. a lot of black and white photographs in art installations and museums all over the world that consider the finitude of mortality. It's actually the first festival experience I've ever had of jumping up and down on a bouncy castle of Stonehenge. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I have to I have to locate the work within my own artistic like experience as a viewer and a participant and I go for the unique over the derivative every time. Well when and I don't think we're not putting, this piece is, is that fascinating. We're, we're not putting we're not putting art pieces up against each other is this is not a best of the festival art. Robot wars. I think we should find out who wins. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to win in a knockdown <laughs> drag out fight? Um, these big installations are only one of the things you can see at Sydney Festival. Tonight, the Hilliard Ensemble played the Great Hall at Sydney University, and we sent producer Miles Martignoni to talk to them. Hello, I'm Gordon. I'm the baritone in the group. I'm Rogers. I'm one of the two tenors, the lower of the two tenors. Hi, I'm Stephen, and I'm the other tenor. Hi, I'm David. I'm what's called a countertenor with a sort of high squeaky voice. And uh, we're all from the Hidial Ensemble. Can you tell me a bit about the, the program you'll be playing tonight? Yeah, well, uh, ever since the group was founded, um, it's performed a mixture of old and new music. Uh, um, uh, the, the songbook program, um, the title helps, uh, enables us to put together really whatever we want to put together under a, uh, a helpful title. So it, it is a mixture of, of some of our favourite early music uh, together with a number of pieces that have been specially written for us, including a, a world premiere tonight.
um, uh, some Japanese folk song arrangements by Toshio Hosokawa. So you heard it first here tonight. And can you tell me a bit about how you pick your favorite songs? Do you each have favorites or do you all have to agree on the song? It helps if we agree. <laughs> I, I think on the whole, if somebody really hated a piece, the rest of us wouldn't enjoy it very much because uh, the, the dynamic wouldn't be very good. <laughs> in the end, uh, Gordon has control in that regard because he put the program together, so one of us would have to disagree violently for him to, to take a piece out, I think. Indeed. So what do you think of Gordon's taste in the greatest hits of the ensemble, I guess? Well, yeah, all the music we are performing tonight is music that we, I think we all enjoy very much. And, uh, and of course, as, as Gordon said, the uh, Hosokawa is uh, it's the first time we, we will have ever performed it. And uh, uh, we've been rehearsing it, uh, of course, and uh, I think we're going to like that piece too. So why, why don't you tell me a bit about why you well, want to perform this well, particular I, piece? I mean, um, throughout our career, we've always been searching for composers that might interest us and we feel that could write uh, music that would satisfy us and we, and we could enjoy singing basically and um, I came across this chap um, Toshio Hosokawa he's Japanese and he was well I think probably their leading composer now I mean he was um, Takamitsu's star pupil who was, uh, and uh, I met him in Germany because he lived in Germany and he I've always admired the music he's written for uh, orchestrally and what have you. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I invited him to a Hilliard concert room in Tokyo and uh, just to see what his reaction would be. And afterwards, he, he really uh, seemed to enjoy it anyway. And uh, said, I, I mean, I would be interested in writing you some, some uh, piece for you guys. I've got this idea in the back of my head uh, of some Japanese folk songs, some very simple songs which I could sort of... Uh, sort of harmonize in my own way would you be interested and I said I think we'd love to but of course as is always the case with these things it that was year, several years ago and I thought it would never happen then suddenly about a year or so ago um, I got this message from his publisher said are you still interested and I said yes so I met and we agreed sort of the logistics of it and uh, so he said well I, I would love to write this piece for you I said I've written very little vocal music as it happens and so this is quite uh, quite a challenge for me and then it was a question of when we were going to perform it. And, it, and uh, 19, 2014 is our last year. And so we, time is not on our side. We can't do that many performances. And, and the actual uh, commission was originally for, for some time um, early 2014. But when I knew we were coming to Sydney, I, I, ra I, rang him, I sort of wrote to him an email and said, is there any chance you could uh, sort of write it slightly earlier and we could actually do the world premiere in in Sydney because I think it would be fantastic and then we're going on to Canada afterwards and we could do it there too and uh, so he wrote back and said David I can write it but uh, it'll be if you don't mind it's going to be very tight to the wire I have a major commission which well, I won't complete till December the 15th, so I cannot start until December 15th writing this. Is that okay for you? I said, it'll have to be. And so sure enough, um, the, piece, uh, the, the piece was written on December, uh, finalised on December the 23rd, which is quite close to the wire, and, that's, and we're doing it tonight. So how long have you been rehearsing for? Well, well since we were here, two days. <laughs> two days we've been looking at it. You're listening to The Guardian podcast of the Sydney Festival.
So Joel Mears, the editor of Time Out Sydney, is with me. Hello, Joel. Hello, Vicky. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And uh, Sydney is very, very buzzy in festival time, of course. Yeah, it's absolutely buzzing around this time of year. It's always buzzy in summer, but the two weeks of the Sydney Festival are just pretty crazy. It's all centred around the Sydney Festival Village this year, which, um, as they keep telling us, is three times larger than it was last year. It is their favourite fact. It is their favourite fact. And I think part of that is owing to the massive Stonehenge sacrilege installation. Yes, I know. It is. It's three times the size. That's because a third of it is taken up. Yeah, but there's an extra tent, the Lee Ronaldo tent. Oh, not Lee Ronaldo. (laughs) Circus Ronaldo tent. Lee Ronaldo. That would be an interesting tent. (laughs) Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth. It does play the festival, yeah. we should say. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's bigger, it's buzzing. Sydney, you know, it's all that way in Parramatta. It's here in Darling Harbour. People are coming out to see stuff. I know we were talking about these large installation arts and uh, whether they have any depth to them, but they certainly get the crowds out. And, you know, I think they've really done some interesting stuff this year, engaging some interesting partners like Messina, the ice cream uh, company extraordinaire. If you haven't had a Messina gelato and you live in Sydney, I don't know what you're doing with your time. Really. I don't think you're a citizen. I don't think it's allowed. But they've partnered with them. They've got amazing stalls at the Festival Village. It's just a really exciting time. And obviously, you know, they talk about the festival first night not being here anymore. But I think we saw on the weekend with Shaka Khan's performance, everyone was out and in force and having a great time. And it's about Sydney. It's about getting outside and in the open air. And so there are loads of tourists. Town is full of people who aren't normally in town. Um, So what are your top tips for places outside the festival that you'll get a great Sydney experience and you should try when you're here? Well, there is a number of things you can do while you're in Sydney that you may not necessarily think of. One of the most obvious ones that probably does come to your mind immediately is the Opera House. And like the festival, the Opera House really comes alive in summer. And at the moment, they've got a program called Summer at the House, and that involves a lot of great musical performances. For example, we've got Nico Case on the way. We've got The National coming. They just had Grizzly Bear. But they've also got a lot of installations and sort of pop-up bars. They've got a garden bar on the sort of outside there. I love that garden bar. I (laughs) I think that garden bar should... Guardian, um, Guardian. I just branded it. I think the Guardian Garden Bar. I think the Garden Bar should be there all the time. I don't understand why it's not really. The frustrating thing with these pop-ups is that they just pop away. But one of the other great things in Sydney. <laughs> the, the, my favourite fact about that pop-up is yeah. it has pims ready mixed on tap. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. I actually did not know that, but that must make you feel well at home. Do you have ready mixed on tap pims? No, no, in, you don't. Back in the Guardian head office, <laughs> definitely not. It's sort of a bit frothy, which I wonder about. But you do get a good fruit Everything's salad in frothy, it. Everything's frothy. You know? Yeah, a bit of a head on it, and not enough cucumber, but not bad. Not okay, bad. Okay. Getting there. <laughs> Vicky's review of the the pims. Um, but you know, speaking of things that people might not necessarily think about, there's a lot of waterways that aren't Sydney Harbour in Sydney, and one of the most beautiful that I always go bung on about is Pitwater. So I don't know if you've been to Pitwater yet. I have not been to okay. Pitwater. Well, it's up about an hour north of Sydney at the Kuringai Chase National Park. And I think one of the most uh, beautiful tourist experiences is to hire a kayak there and just get in the water. It's a, it's a sort of different side of Sydney that not many tourists see, but you get sort of bushland, beautiful sort of cliffs and yachts and people. And it's just a really nice day. Gorgeous. Mm. And uh, tell us, we've already, so we've already had our gelato. Uh, several times over but where else if you sort of want to go and have something to eat fairly late at night say after a show Sydney Mm. isn't always great for I think late at night eating I agree can you think of somewhere great to go well there's a number of places a lot of the bars in Sydney do very good food if you're going to go to Newtown a lot of those bars open later and uh, but if you want the late night supper I think you can't go past Chinatown 
Uh, and it's a sort of tried and tested thing, but the Golden Century is open to 4 a.m. And if you haven't done a Golden Century meal, you haven't really lived in Sydney, if you haven't dived and got the live prawns and the pippies with exosauce, splurge on a lobster at 3 a.m. in the morning with a bottle of two of wine. You, it's just sort of a, a quintessential Sydney experience and kind of perfectly situated for the festival. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You can fall out of the festival into Chinatown, have yes. your mad crab dinner at Golden <laughs> Century. Yeah, and absolutely. Be ready to go the next morning. Yes, but I mean, there are lots of pop-up eats at the festival itself, so I don't want to go past those as well. Uh, but if you do want to go big, go to the Golden Century. Great. And uh, tomorrow we're joined on the podcast by Amanda Palmer, who is acting as Guardian Australia's Agnian. So if you have got an urgent question you need Amanda to solve for you, go and put it on the website now and uh, she may pick yours. Thank you very much, Joel Mears, editor of Time Out Sydney. Thank you for having me. Happy festival. Thank you. And thank you, Van Baden. We'll see you later in the week. You certainly will. <laughs>